All right, what's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast. This is Management of Musculoskeletal Dislocations in the Young Athlete. We're live at Memorial Hermann Sports Medicine Update today with Dr. Mun LaRue. Uh, I'm your guest host, Ray Olivo. Uh, please join our conversation uh, on sportsmedicinebroadcast.com uh, backslash, backslash dislocation management. So, Dr. Mun thank you so much for joining us today. I really no, appreciate thank it. You, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, we, we just had a, an awesome presentation out there with you uh, talking about um, many joint dislocations uh, with uh, our young athletes. Um, I, I'll start with so- shoulder dislocations. So that's what you started with with uh, out there um you know we talked about your 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 typical uh anterior dislocations of the shoulder which was about 90 95 percent of the population correct all right correct um talk about how you would handle uh your neurovascular assessment once you're on the field sure absolutely yeah so you know especially before any reduction maneuver is performed it's it's always just good good to just practice doing a neurovascular assessment um just to get in the routine um, so with the, sh- with the shoulder dislocations, uh, sort of alluded to in the talk, there's the risk of the axillary nerve, but you know, though there are those players that you think about, uh, in the majority of the, these dislocations, there's one nerve or the other that tends to be the one that tends to get injured. It's good to do just a general overview of the extremity. Sure. So typically what I'll try to do is in, in terms of the acute assessment of the, of the extremity involved with the dislocated uh, joint. Um, I'll do a distal assessment because if you're, if you're intact distally, so further down on the extremity, then everything up proximally should be okay with some caveats. Um, and then what I'll typically do is I'll first start by doing a pulse check because Mm -hmm. that's the most emergent thing. If you don't get, if you don't have a pulse and there's a dysvascular limb, that's an emergency and that sort of trumps everything. So I'll, I'll get a sense if I'm having trouble palpating radial or ulnar arterial pulse. I'll check the other side because some people are just hard to palpate those structures. Um, and then sometimes I'll even move up proximally to see if I can palpate a brachial arterial pulse. Okay. And it's important to sort of compare that to the contralateral side if you have if you're in a time frame, you know, if it's on, if it's an on-field injury, there's a lot of people swarming the field. It could be hard to even get access to the other limb, but at least feel it for what it's worth. You know, once you've documented that, if you're having trouble, you can at least look at the capillary refill, so the nail bed. So you push on the nail bed, you get it to go white, and then you want to see it sort of perk up and pink up in a matter of two seconds. Okay, right. If it's any longer than that or if it's looking a little mottled, then you're going to be concerned about a vascular insult of some sort somewhere sure. upstream. Then when you're looking at the neuro assessment, my, I just have this quick thing that I go through. I make them do an okay sign. Mm-hmm with the index finger and the thumb. If, you, if that okay sign is intact, then your AN nerve is intact. AN nerve is, the, is a distribution of the median nerve, so mm-hmm. okay sign. Then I have them do a thumbs up. If they can do a thumbs up, then your PIN nerve is intact, mm-hmm. uh, or your radial nerve. And then if they can cross their fingers over, then their ulnar nerve is intact. But just because the motor's intact doesn't mean their sensory is intact, mm-hmm. because uh, you can get partial palsies where just the sensory is affected, but motor is not. So it's good to also sort of do a scratch test. Sure. Get the get my hand, I scratch the first dorsal web space, so the, the space between the thumb and the index. I'll have I'll scratch the tip of the index finger, and I'll scratch the tip of the small finger. If you do those three things, you're covering sort of all the sensory distributions of the major nerve players in the arm. Right. Um, and then you know, and then w- with the shoulder dislocations, the caveat is the axillary nerve. Axillary nerve terminates up more proximally. It's it's terminating its innervation and sensory distribution up around the shoulder. 
So just because you do that distal assessment, you're not going to be able to know what the function of the axillary nerve is. So what I'll do is I'll do a scratch test once again over the deltoid, just mm -hmm. below the acromion. I'll scratch, and I'll have the patient keep that in mind and then compare it to the other side. And if they notice a difference, then you have to theorize that the axillary nerve is being, if it's actively dislocated at that time point, being, right. being sort of stretched, um, or if it spontaneously reduced or you've already reduced it, uh, there was a stretch at some point, either during the reduction maneuver or before. And then the other thing you can do for a motor assessment of the axillary nerve, it's really hard if they're in pain to get them to abduct their arm away from the body. So I was always taught by my mentors to just have them posteriorly direct against the resistance of your hand, mm -hmm. their elbow. And that's sort of activating the posterior delts. It's a little bit easier maneuver for them to do even if they're in a, in a dislocated state and you can get a sense of the deltoid strength. But once again, all these things I do before and after the reduction. That's awesome. Good stuff. Uh, kind of two things going off of that. Uh, you know, you had mentioned uh, just kind of checking distal neurovascular evaluation. Correct. Um, have you ever had cases where you've had, um, and you said generally that everything proximal is, is okay, if, they're, if distally they're okay. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had uh, a brachial plexus crush injury um, associated with um, a shoulder dislocation? Or, and have you ever had any transient neurovascular symptoms um, after a shoulder dislocation? Yes. So definitely I've, I've had transient symptoms. Uh, the, you know, the, in terms of the transient symptomatology, it's usually the initial insult was a dislocation itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you follow it, and then they tend to resolve. Right. And the only ones that I've come across with a simple shoulder dislocation has just been axillary nerve palsies okay. that, that uh, you know, have not really led on to any long-term consequences. Sure. Um, and then, you know, you got to also take into mind the majority of my population is the pediatric population, yeah. and they're hardy. <laughs> they're hardy. It takes a lot to, to cause a kid a long-lasting uh, nerve right. or even a vessel injury. <clears throat> um, and then uh, in terms of brachial plexus crush, uh, if it's a simple dislocation, never, mm -hmm. never seen it. Uh, maybe a stinger. I, I can remember during, at least not during my my attending career, but uh, as a as a as a resident, I had a patient who was a football player had a dislocated simple uh, simple dislocation. It had a stinger, but that resolved, meaning that there was just symptoms of sensory brachial plexus issues, but that got better, and he felt burning and sensation, etc. And then it came back after on the course of a week. Right. I have had crush injuries or seen crush injuries in more complex trauma situations okay um and usually in that case there's violation of the shoulder girdle and you know or if there's a penetrating injury of some sort too sure into the area of the brachial plexus okay very good uh you had a pretty crazy video about the uh well i shouldn't say it's crazy but pretty normal with the oakland athletics uh third baseman there yeah um if you have an athlete um who self-reduces um his, his shoulder um our field what is your general call for return to play? So is it based off of function? Is this athlete able to do normal, do normal baseball activity or is it immediate imaging? Yeah, so, so that's, a, that's a really good question. I should have honed a little bit on the on, on purpose of that talk. But, you know, if the athlete in, in the video I showed, um, he actually reduced his own mm -hmm. shoulder. So if you got an athlete that's doing uh, their own self-reduction, they've they're probably a recurrent dislocator. Sure. Uh, so they've had instability for some time. Um, in those cases, um, you know, I would I would preferentially prefer to hold the patient back and do a full assessment and then have them range their shoulder and then and then see if it's spontaneously reducing or if they're having apprehension. Mm -hmm. However, especially when you get into the sort of the majors and pros, um, they'll sort of 
decide for themselves to some degree. They right. may not even take <laughs> they may not even take our opinion because you know if they feel okay and they've been dealing with it for some time, uh, they're gonna go at it. You know if it's if, if it's a person that's got sort of laxity in general and you know a, a multimodal directional instability. Um, you know, then if they're feeling okay and you do an assessment, I'm okay with them going back because this is probably something that they've been dealing with, with, with for some time, but they should plan on getting uh, assessed at some point mm -hmm. for sure. Right. I, you know, first time dislocator, no question they're out and they should be assessed. You gotta, you gotta assess their anatomy. You gotta look at their x-rays, make sure they don't have this hill sacks or bank heart lesions, et cetera. Right. But a person that's like dislocated, you know, s seven to 10 times, um, if they're stable and you do an assessment, um, you know, and you got to keep in mind sort of the, the athletic endeavor they're in. If it's a throwing an overhead athlete, there's a high likelihood that if it came out, it's going to come out again, maybe right. pull those back. But if it's a soccer player or something, they're not relying on their upper extremity, not goalie, then you could potentially consider them going back. Right. But if it happens again, two times, I would, I would pull them. I'd okay. pull them. Maybe something new happened in that in that dislocation. Right, right. Maybe they've they've impacted their hill sacks more, and then now it's more unstable. It's engaging with less external rotation to, to come out. Their bank out lesion has has propagated. You know, uh, yeah, those are things to think about. But every it, this is one of those controversial topics. I think there's yeah. there's no consensus on this, as there are a lot of lot, lack of consensus in in, in, our, in what we do. Right, so. right, absolutely. So when uh, we'll talk a little about uh, about hill sacks and bank heart lesions. So um, when you have a, a student athlete um, who is presenting uh, with recurrent shoulder dislocation mm -hmm. because of their anatomy. Um, when is it a now surgical uh, procedure where you're thinking again more surgical versus versus the staying away from doing conservative therapy? Um, is it based on function? Is it a combination of function function and imaging? Where do you go from there? It, it, that's that's a really good question too. It's it's really a combination. Mm -hmm. um, if if by if they're having recurrent instability, something's not right, right? Mm -hmm. If they're having frank dislocation episodes over and over again, something one of those constraints that we that we all that we all consider in these things is 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 gone awry or multiple of those constraints is. Right. So you know you'll never truly be able to make a decision just based on clinical assessment or number of discs. You have to get uh, further imaging, right. and it's become a gold standard. Um, uh, at least here in the U.S., for us to get an MRI, mm -hmm. um, some with arthrogram and some without. They can make an argument with these new three Tesla magnets, the more powerful ones. You don't even need to inject the shoulder. You'll get enough uh, um, definition mm -hmm. uh, to be able to assess the labrum. Um, but uh, if you've got a multiple dislocator and then you have MRI uh, findings consistent with a bank heart lesion or a large engaging hill sacs, you can, or they may not even show that this may be a patient that's ligamentously lax. Sure. Okay. And they could just be dislocating because of that laxity. Um, and their MRI may not show any true Bancard or Hill Sachs lesion, but, you know, that's a little bit of a different beast. If you have a true lesion and something to intervene, intervene on, and they're younger than 30, and, um, you know, and, they're, and they want to do whatever they can to get back to peak condition. I think an operative intervention is worth thinking about. If they're one of those just ligamentously lax patients, you can continue try doing you know um, periscapular muscle strengthening exercises and rotator cuff. But at some point, you have to consider doing uh, what we call capsular free, where you essentially just tighten down mm -hmm. the joint. But those patients, unfortunately, because there's something about the quality of their tissues that are different, they tend to not even do necessarily 
the best with those interventions, right. as opposed to the hill. Uh, excuse me, the uh, the bank heart lesions. If repair is done arthroscopically well, they can they can get back to peak function form. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, let's jump a little bit to uh, elbow dislocations. So yep. um, you talked about um, you know doing your baseline neurovascular assessment there as well, um, and then you mentioned something um, about. Uh, having, uh, say you get a negative neurovascular uh, distribution, meaning you can't find pulses uh, distally with an elbow dislocation. And then you talked about um, potentially if you did, if you say you did have those neurovascular, a positive neurovascular distribution, but when you reduced it, that neurovascular distribution went away. Can you talk a little bit about that? So is there, um, if you didn't, if you had neurovascular um, compromisation, um, and didn't feel pulses distally with an elbow dislocation, do you reduce that still? Or um, is that something you splint, send to the ER, and you reduce in the ER? Or? Yeah, yeah it, it, this, is, this definitely becomes sort of a gray territory. I would, I would sort of consider the, I would consider reducing right away, mm-hmm. okay? Because uh, the, the issue becomes, though, is that if it, you know, it's it, with just assessing the patient clinically, you don't know if there's, if there's a, a associated fracture yeah. and you don't want to, you don't want to put too much force and potentially worsen sort of the alignment of the fracture or cause further impingement and compromise when your intention is to do something, something, you know, to alleviate the symptoms. Right. But that being said, if, if you keep in the back of your mind that if I'm going to attempt this, I will only do what the patient allows me to do. I will do it gently um, and, and just sort of see what happens, but not force it. Mm-hmm. You may be lucky and it may just literally with a little bit of traction fall back in and then the kinking of the vessel or the nerve at that point may resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that, that, that's why I definitely advocate in the knee dislocations. If, especially if you're in a, in a, in a, in a, in a position that it's going to take a while to get the patient transferred to the hospital, I, I think it's important to at least attempt to get you know get it in a better position to avoid a catastrophic uh, outcome for that patient. Absolutely. But with the elbows sort of going back, and that I think it's worth a gentle attempt. But if if it's felt that there's a lot of gross instability um, and it's not going easy, I wouldn't continue to try because uh, the patient may be spasmed down. There it may be more of a complex injury, um, and uh, they may need sedation. And it, it it's nice to have sort of the ability to get the images first to sort of know what you're dealing with. And it gives you a sense of how much force you can apply in attempting that reduction. Right. So say you have a uh, elbow dislocation, uh, you have a reduction on MRI, you have a MCL tear or UCL tear. Uh, I think you said six to 12 weeks is your general, just flat out elbow dislocation, no associated damages. I, I'm pretty sure you said six to 12 weeks was mm-hmm. uh, return to play. What's it like if you have associated uh, ligamentous damage uh, as well? So yeah. a full, full tear of the MCL, are you saying? Absolutely. If, if, you know, the way you got to think about the, the ligamentous injury and in an elbow dislocation always goes from lateral to medial, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like a rotatory type occurrence. So you got your LCL, then your anterior capsule, volsus tears, and then MCLs last to go. If you got everything, including the MCL, um, the, the six, that, that, that sort of time frame that I mentioned, the six to 12 weeks is it, it, that's too soon. Yep. The problem is once again, you know, in, in reviewing for this talk, um, I tried to look up the literature and it's very variable. It depends on what needs to be done for that patient. Okay. Once again, I have a skewed, a skewed population. The pediatric population heals exceptionally well. Right. Um, and you're not necessarily in a simple dislocation, even getting an MRI in those patients, mm-hmm. you'll reduce them. 
you'll consider immobilizing them longer than the general idea of two weeks because they don't really get stiff. You mm -hmm. may even consider immobilizing them as long as six. They'll have a little bit of stiffness, but they tend to resolve that even with limited uh, PT. Mm -hmm. And you won't necessarily even get imaging um, as long as there's no associated fracture and then they'll probably be good to go after that uh, immobilization time point and once they've got their range of motion. With a uh, professional athlete, college athlete, uh, an adult individual, I think the push has been to get a post-injury MRI, especially if they're if they rely on high level of function, and if you see that full constellation of of injury, uh, there could be a justification to consider operative intervention to help harness, uh, at least especially from the MCL standpoint, healing. Right. Um, just because if you get it early, you can do a repair as to, as opposed to having to do a full on reconstruction in those cases. So it's very variable. I can't give you an exact time point, but if you got the, 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 you know, the full, uh, full Monty of all three of those, um, I would say that you could push that out potentially two to three months, mm -hmm. uh, with the potential adjunct of some sort of intervention. Right. Okay. But what usually happens is it's typically LCL anterior capsule. You do the six to 12 weeks. It's simple dislocation. They're getting back to their sporting activity. And then they notice what's called rotatory instability. Mm -hmm. So when they're pushing themselves out of an armchair or using their arm to sort of brace themselves up, they feel their arm sort of catching and subluxating. Mm -hmm. In those cases, then I would say we attempted the non-operative measure. They're still feeling instability. Now we get an MRI and then we consider operative intervention with an LUCL uh, uh, reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And then that'll sort of delay their recovery. Very good. So it's, it's just, unfortunately, with any of these things, there's it's, just a, it's a decision tree, yeah. trial <laughs> and error, and everyone's got their own perspective. Some are quick to image, some want to delay and wait. In the pediatric population, I tend to not force the image because if it's a young enough kid, doing an MRI necessitates sedation, anesthesia, and if the majority of those, in my, in my experience or in the literature, show that they heal well, I'll try to attempt non-operative measures and return to play and right. augment that if need be. Right. Very good. Um, let's get into hip, hip dislocation a little mm -hmm. bit. And I, I, we all know this is an emergent situation. So um, I, I just want you to touch base on amen, avas, Jesus, avascular necrosis um, and the process it is for a patient to undergo rehab and try to get back into return to play there as well. Yeah. You know, the, this this is sort of an ongoing area of study. You know, what are the independent modifiable risk factors to prevent these patients from developing avascular necrosis? And mm -hmm. the problem is we don't have a consensus. You know, a lot of the studies that have been put out there is based on retrospect view. So you're looking retrospectively on different things. The only thing that I've been able to find in the literature um, um, and what I've always used just through my training and for my mentorship all along the years is that six-hour window. Yeah. And I think no one will disagree that, you know, getting that patient back into a reduced state within six hours is a key to success, uh, or at least helping that patient uh, succeed in terms of uh, reducing the risk of AVN down the stretch. Um, but even that's not a guarantee. Yeah. Um, what you do in these cases, you know, in the hip dislocations that I've dealt with in the pediatric populations, we've had simple ones and they tend to do fine. I don't necessarily image all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll do a protected weight-bearing protocol uh, for about six to eight weeks and then slowly have them progress. Okay. Um, and then get them into, into some PT rehab and then sort of just follow them with serial x-rays to see if anything develops. Mm -hmm. With the adult patients, the only ones that I've, I've dealt with in my career have been with an associated posterior wall fracture. So they're getting an operative intervention because inherently they're unstable because the socket has been violated. Right. Um, and then with that, because it's an articular fracture, you're at least guaranteed three months of no full-on weight bearing. 
but you'll start doing range of motion exercises um, at least within two to three weeks, and then you progress to weight bearing. But if AVN is going to set in, usually you know by eight to nine months. So now we're moving towards in those in those patients if there's no hardware, uh, getting an MRI to see, uh, especially if they're an athlete. Uh, maybe earlier to see if their perfusion has been maintained. Right. But once again, it's very variable. And in the, if you have a hip dislocation and if you're in season, just it's a guarantee that you're going to be out of season and watch like a hawk. Yeah. All right. Uh, patellar and knee dislocations. So um, we, we talked about the kind of patellar, patellar dislocations kind of you report, they report to you with self-reduced. Um, what is your idea on return to play? So say, I know you mentioned stuff about, uh, having a fusion for over two weeks, getting an MRI and whatnot. Um, say you have a student athlete who, uh, again, comes to you, they've, it was self-reduced, uh, there's no joint effusion and, uh, they're functional. They have full strength, bilaterally, uh, contra- you know, bilaterally and, um, uh, they can cut, they can jump, et cetera. Um, what's your idea in return to play for that student athlete? Yeah, so if 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 they clinically have an effusion, mm-hmm. and with that effusion will come restricted restricted range of motion, so mm-hmm. they'll they'll keep their knee in a slightly flexed position, maybe ten degrees shy of full extension. Definitely can't. Okay, we need that effusion to dissipate. Otherwise, at the very least, they're not going to be able to plant, cut properly, and then risk of injuring something else and having maybe another associated ligamentous injury or something. Sure. If if like if in your patient example, if 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 they reduce it's a, especially a multi, uh, uh, like a multi dislocator or a patellar instability type patient. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of a recurrent thing, but there's no effusion and they're okay to cut and they're feeling okay. And your exam doesn't show any other signs of ligamentous involvement or injury. I think they're okay to go back. Okay. Okay. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, with these recurrent, uh, 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 dislocators, you have to just consider continued rehab. I'm real. I'm really big about. Some people make the justification, um, and there is some reports uh, that describe the benefit of doing amputal reconstruction after yeah. two two events. But especially in the young kids, I like to give them a chance to potentially rehab. And I, you know, I'd say I'm about fifty fifty and potentially um, avoiding having to to do something in yep. a child. But at the very least, if you can get them to adulthood. You're not dealing with with open growth plates right. that potentially can get injured during an intervention. Right. The ampullary reconstruction has has been really um, it's 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 really evolved and it, it it's a it's a it's a really good operation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, and the, and the the rehab protocol for those patients takes about three months, um, and I think most people are using that as their guideline. There's many ways to do it. And it's not a it's not a bad option, but any anytime you can avoid surgery, I think it's it, it's a good way to go. But you know, to answer your question again, if the patient's feeling okay and they've got a known history of recurrent stability, but they don't have an effusion, um, and it was maybe a subluxation event, they're okay to go back. You don't have to pull pull them out. But if they're if they, if they notice it happen again, once again, two strikes, I I say pull them back because the last right. thing you want is they're not feeling 100% and they injure something else just because they don't have the normal proprioceptive protective mechanisms. Okay, very good. Uh, I have just one question on knee dislocations that will get you out yeah, of here. Yeah, um, absolutely. So we talked about uh, Mackenzie Milton from uh, UCF yes. and his injury. Um, so when uh, when do you recognize the uh, vascular compromise? When is it a immediate? When is it there's? When is there an option for uh, amputation? Yeah. So from a and you know this is the knee dislocation is truly not only orthopedic but it's vascular. So. When a patient with a with a history of a knee dislocation with spontaneous reduction or an actively dislocated knee comes comes in, 
immediately vascular surgery has to be involved. Mm -hmm. Orthopedics has to be involved. Um, even if you don't have imaging, I was always taught to attempt a reduction right away. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times the imaging you're getting is after it's in a reduced state. Mm -hmm. the, the, you're going to be, you, the protocol is to try to recognize as soon as possible if there's been vascular insult. And right. that's going to be by doing, you know, a clinical exam and then palpating mm -hmm. uh, the dorsalis pedis artery, um, you know, and palpating the posterior tibialis artery, comparing it to the contralateral side. We also do this thing called an ankle brachial index, um, where you compare the pressures in that extremity uh, compared to the contralateral side and see, and you also compare that extremity to the arm, the ipsilateral arm. And, you know, if, if, it's, if it's less than a 0.8 or 0.1, you have to consider vascular compromise. But nowadays, um, you know, with the technology we have, these patients are getting CT angiograms okay. pretty urgently. So, you know, right away, you've got image, you got image guidance that, hey, there is a compromise or there's a dissection or a complete transection of the vessel here. Um, and once again, the key to this is how fast you can get their blood flow revascularized. Right. And you know, this is where, you know, I, I truly have to defer to our vascular surgery colleagues. And, you know, we're, we're blessed to have some excellent vascular surgeons at Memorial Hermann. Uh, but, you know, them getting involved quickly, uh, knowing that there's a concern, having uh, got, having either uh, definitive um, cross-sectional imaging uh, with uh, contrasted studies showing a violation or injury or good objective information, ABI, all this different stuff that I was mentioning, getting them involved and getting that patient revast is super important. All the ligaments, any bony injuries that may be involved as well, take you know, our second fiddle to, to this. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, that's going to be the key to avoiding this patient needing an amputation okay. is that you get them revascularized as soon as possible. You know, I, I quoted the six hour rule for the hip, but for these type of situations, it's as soon as possible. Right. And depending on the patient's age and the environment, you know, whether it's cold, this and that, there's a lot of different things that sort of go into play in terms of whether that limb becomes viable. Also in terms of if the graft, if they do a bypass graft or if they, uh, if they do a, um, Gore-Tex graft, some sort of bypass technique, how, how well that lasts too. Right. So <clears throat> once again, once, you know, I'm skewed in my population, kids are even in the cases I've dealt with transection of arteries, kids are robust. You can do what's called an interposition graft. You can take a vein, bridge the area of defect, and they can do great. An adult, they may, that, that vessel may go down. Um, they may they may need to uh, uh, revisit to the OR, and if you're getting in that situation, a lot of back and forths, the the risk of needing an amputation is going to go higher and higher. Right. Um, so it, it's really based on time to revascularization, time to recognition, um, and then also how well the patient tolerates that revascularization procedure. Awesome, good stuff, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, appreciate Dr. Mungleru here again. Um, I want to send a thank you out to Owen Eisminger for interacting with us on Facebook here with the Sports Medicine Broadcast. Um, quick call to action here. Help out Sports Medicine Broadcast while shopping on Amazon. You can go to sportsmedicinebroadcast.com backslash Amazon. Uh, again, I'm Ray Olivo. This is Dr. Mun LaRue. Uh, our sponsors today are Frio Hydration and The Right Stuff. You can find The Right Stuff on smb.com backslash The Right Stuff. We can be contacted at sportsmedicinebroadcast.com backslash dislocation management. Again, Ray Olivo, Dr. Mun LaRue. That's a wrap.